Please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. I'll be reading 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Great shepherd of the sheep, great Savior of sinners. Cause us to hear more clearly, more deeply, and more joyfully than ever the Gospel. In Your great name, the only name under heaven by which any can be saved. Verses 24 and 25 are part of the larger context that goes back to verse 18. And this morning here, he just flows into this concentration on the atonement of Jesus. Now, if you've been here and you look in your Bible, back to verse 18... The reason it's kind of strange is his main point is talking to Christians, saying, in particular, to those who were slaves, be submissive. That's what the text is about. Be submissive even to abusive slave masters. And then he gave the reason why. Because Jesus also suffered. And He is your example to follow in His steps. So, He said, because Jesus, in the way He responded, follow Him. And then He just tacks on this statement about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus by saying, He, Christ Himself, bore our sins. Uh, this is way. I, I want to help you read the Bible. You should ask, what's he, what's he doing here? What's the author doing? This, I think, is what he's doing. He's been clear, and we saw last week, that it is true that Jesus did suffer. It is true that while being reviled, He did not revile and return. It's true He did not threaten. But it's true that He kept entrusting Himself to the Father. And it's true that you, if you're a believer, are meant to copy Him, to follow Him. He is your example. But lest you think that's the Gospel, He makes it clear that's not the Gospel. Unless you think that's the centerpiece of what true Christianity is. The reason that Jesus came to die is just to set you an example. He says, no, 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 no. It is He Himself. Yes, He is your example. 
But He came to bear our sins. That's what I think He's doing. Let's briefly look at verses 24 to 25 and see how He does this. The first thing He says in verse 24 is, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, the cross. So, He says, He, Jesus, suffered and died on the Roman cross in our place. He bore our sins. Then, 24b says why? He did this in order that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So, somehow, Jesus' substitutionary death has a bearing on how Christians live. Then, in verse 24c, He restates all that by saying this. And He gets it from Isaiah chapter 53. By His wounds, you were healed. He just restated it. In other words, what do you mean by His wounds? He means He Himself bore our sins on the tree. By His wounds. What do you mean you have been healed? He means in order that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It's done something to those who are believers. Then in verse 25, he says, let me just interpret that whole thing for you. And he gets it again from Isaiah 53. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. That's what a Christian is. Now, that result You've returned, have you? If you have, you are His. That result, don't miss it, is what the atonement produced. But I'm going to really slow down now in the next few weeks. Because Christ bore our sin in His body on the tree. That's what we call in the Bible the atonement. That's what I want to talk about the next two weeks. Then the third week I'll come back and we'll look more, more deeply at what Peter's doing here in the text and we'll see the implications of the atonement. But before we get to the implications of it, let's make sure we have the centrality of Christianity, the centrality of the Gospel clear, which is the atonement. Let me open it up this way. If you haven't bought or read or borrowed and read this book that came out a few weeks ago titled, What is the Gospel? by Greg Gilbert, I really encourage you to but he'll, he'll kick us off this way because we're asking the question, okay, what is the center? What is the atonement? Which is the centerpiece of what the good news of Jesus is? He writes in his introduction, What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
You'd think that would be an easy question to answer, especially for Christians. In fact, you'd think that writing a book like this, one asking Christians to think carefully about the question, what is the gospel of Jesus, you would think it would be completely unnecessary. It's like asking carpenters to sit around and ponder the question, what is a hammer? How firm a grasp do you think most Christians really have on the content of the Christian gospel? How would you answer if someone asked you, what is this news that you Christians go on and on about? And what's so good about it? My sense is that far too many Christians would answer with something far short of what the Bible holds out to be the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's the question over the next two weeks. What is it? And the way I want to start it off is by asking the question and answering it, what the atonement is not. Okay. The atonement is not. Well, you see, Jesus came in the womb of Mary, grew up, lived, suffered and died to be our example on how to obey God, even in the really hard times. That's not the Gospel. If that's... Okay, that's it. You're done. I'm going to give you all the time you want. You, that's it. Follow Jesus. I'm a Jesus follower. It's not it. It does not take into account what the Gospel takes into account, which is our sin and God's holy, divine justice. That answer has no place for the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. It merely says he's a, he's a great religious figure and we follow Him and we're to be inspired by that. For look what obedience cost Him, so you should likewise obey. That's not the gospel. Okay, okay, how about, here's a good thought. Hmm. See, God's a loving God. He, he wants to forgive everybody. It's right there. He has no problem with forgiving like we do. So forgiveness is just, he's just, he's just a big ball of forgiveness. And he wants to offer it and give it to everybody. But people don't pay attention to him. So he sent his son to scream at you, saying, see how much I love you? As he stretched out his arms. So that that would get us, get our attention. It would move our emotions. We would be affected by that message. He loves me that much? Well, then I will come to him for forgiveness. That's not the gospel. That's not what happened. It's not the purpose foundationally of the cross. Oh, okay. Jesus did say in Mark 10.45, 
I did not come to be served. I mean, but I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom. So, oh, what Jesus did is He gave His life in suffering and death as the ransom price to pay off Satan. Satan had humanity bound in sin and enslaved and, and there was a price to be paid to release us and He went to the cross and He paid that price. And He was God's bait ultimately to trick Satan because once He paid the price and freed those who were held hostage by Him, God raised him from the dead because Satan couldn't have him forever because Jesus never sinned and therefore that's the atonement. No, that is not what happened on the cross. Okay, God wants to forgive, but we're just so dense. And boy, is this true. We don't understand what sin is. And so in order to demonstrate how horrible sin is, He sent His Son into the world to die because of our sin. To show how horribly grievous that sin is as He hangs on a cross. That's not the Gospel of Jesus Christ. But what is this core of the Gospel called the Atonement? By atonement, let me start off this way. What we mean is, Jesus' life, His death, and ultimately His resurrection is the payment for the deliverance or the salvation from God's eternal punishment on people. The Old Testament, when it refers to the word atonement, means to cover over the sin or to wipe out sin. One of the most important days of the year laid out in the Old Testament for Israel is called the Day of Atonement. And so, what we have going on in the Old Testament, which was all written in order to prepare the way for Jesus Christ from Nazareth, the Scripture's clear on this, is we have this model of what's going to come about the reality of Christ, of priests taking blood sacrifices of an animal as a substitute for the sin of the people. And the animal is slaughtered and killed, punished on the behalf of the people, especially on the Day of Atonement, to cover the sin for another year. Now, just very briefly, let me go through some New Testament terms. Now, get this. These are not theological terms from theologians in seminary. If you read your Bible, these are words that are right there that you're reading in English. So, for instance, sacrifice in the New Testament. It refers to the reality that Joe LeMay deserves not only physical death, but spiritual eternal death for his sin. But there's a sacrifice. Christ has come in order, with that Old Testament model, to present himself as that substitutionary sacrifice. 
For instance, Hebrews 9 verse 26 says, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages in order to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. So it's sacrifice. Another important New Testament term is the word propitiation. Which means in that sacrifice, what was happening was that God's holy, perfect justice, meaning towards sin, meaning perfect anger and wrath, in Christ, that holy, eternal punishment and anger was turned away from those for whom Christ died. For instance, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, he writes, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation in His blood. To be that substitutionary sacrifice where the justice of God would go out on Him and then be satisfied. In Romans 3.25, the Apostle Paul writes, we are separated from God, excuse me, God displayed Christ, or put Christ forward as a propitiation in His blood. It's a sacrifice. It's a propitiation. What the atonement accomplished was something that happened in God toward those whom are being saved. It's called reconciliation. We're separated from God justly because of our very sin nature. In 2 Corinthians 5.18 and 19, Paul says it very clearly this way. God through Christ reconciled us to Himself. All of this is called in the New Testament redemption. The verb, we have been redeemed or purchased back. There's a price that was paid, which was the substitutionary sacrifice. And what happened was that our sin was judged there in another. Christ, the one who didn't sin. So that God's holy, eternal wrath toward us would be totally wiped away now. It's satisfied. That's been done. Justice has been accomplished so that He would now be reconciled to us and call us to trust in His Son. And we are called the redeemed forever. Okay, There's some terms. Sacrifice, propitiation, reconciliation, redemption. Now, I'm very aware we live in 2010. I'm very aware of my Christian evangelical church culture where so often everything in the culture and then in the church gets dumbed down to where people go to church for 30 years and you ask them a central question that could be 
pretty adequately answered in about 90 seconds. Tell me the gospel. And they don't have a clue. Because they don't hear it. They don't read it. In his classic books, over there on the book table, John Stott, in his classic book titled The Cross of Christ, writes, It must even be said that our evangelical emphasis on the atonement is dangerous if we come to it too quickly. We learn to appreciate the access to God which Christ has won for us only after we have first seen God's inaccessibility to sinners. We can cry, Hallelujah! Meaning, praise the Lord! With authenticity only after we have first cried, Woe! is me, for I am lost. Gordon Chang even says it, I think, more clearly when he writes, Preach the cross as much as you like, but it is just a piece of stupidity in a distant historical context unless we understand why it is there. It is as ridiculous as taking a pill that the doctor offers without understanding that I'm sick. No. Really sick. The cross makes no sense if you just say, I believe in Jesus, He died for my sins, and that's His love for me. What what are you talking about? There's four real key things to understand for your soul. And if you're a believer, to understand in telling people the gospel. There's a message, there's a news. And that is tell them who God is. And then you tell them who they are as a human being in the state they're in. Now you're ready to tell them why Christ came. And then, finally, say, respond, and believe. God Humankind, Christ, the cross. And then, and only then, the response. Redemptive history. So let's just do that real quickly then, this first week. God is absolutely holy. Utterly separated unto Himself, eternal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, absolutely and perfectly complete and happy in the beauty and the glory that is God Himself. Now, God, according to Scripture, created mankind for His glory. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 6 to 7 puts it this way. Bring my sons from afar, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. No one will ever really understand why God sent Jesus 
We'll never really understand the atonement of Christ. We'll never really understand our need for it. Who does not understand why God created them. He created men and women in His image in order to reflect as a mirror the essence of His being, of His goodness. That He is the all-satisfying fountain of eternal joy. That's why we're created. Another way to say that is He created us for His glory. For the creature, the finite, to reflect back to the infinite, the eternal one, the reality of who He is. With a man-centered twist on Christianity, which is all over the place, that's why so much of the New Testament doesn't really make sense to people. For instance, Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 to 6. He's talking to the church here. He says, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Now this is stunning if you take it seriously. Why? Unto the praise of His glorious grace. It's the reason He created. And it's the reason we see here that He saves. What He just said was God never acts without Himself as the center of all things. If you raised your hand right now and said, yes, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. This just said the reason He caused you to be a Christian and saved you was so that you would praise His grace. His glorious grace. You jump down to verse 12 in Ephesians 1 and He says it again. He says, the goal of our salvation is that believers exist for this purpose. To the praise of His Glory. You jump down to verse 14. He says, We were redeemed and possessed by God. And he says it again. Unto, that means the purpose of, the praise of His glory. So, first thing we need to understand the atonement is to understand this reality. God created us human beings for His glory which leads to the second biblical reality. Therefore, as finite creatures made in His image, we all are under moral obligation to live to His glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul writes, with no problem. So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean try to make God more glorious than He actually is. It means to acknowledge, reflect, and appropriately respond to who He actually is. 
Psalm chapter 50, verse 23, says it this way. The one who offers thanksgiving. Thank you. Why would you do that? Because he's God. All things are from him, through him, and back unto him. Do you see it? Do you believe it? Do you like it? Well, if there's a true thanksgiving that comes from the answering those questions. Yeah, thank you. And he says, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice, that person glorifies me. It's a heartfelt thanks. Or Paul writes in Romans chapter 4 about Abraham. He says, Abraham grew strong in faith. That means trusting the Creator. He grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. In Romans chapter 1, verse 21, we hear these sobering words. Although they, and if you're confused about who that is, just put your name in there. Although they knew God in nature. There's a God. I know there's a God. You know it deep down. Atheists know it. Although they knew God in nature, they, Joe, did not glorify Him or give thanks. So, God creates everything and He creates humanity in particular for His glory. And thus we are, by our nature, by that relationship of creature to Creator, accountable to glorify Him by being satisfyingly trusting and thankful to Him, which produces obedience to Him. Which leads to the third biblical reality. We have all, every last one of us, failed to glorify God as we ought. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all, meaning everybody, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, what that clearly means in the context, you go back a few sentences to chapter 1 of Romans in verse 23, and Paul just already said this, we sinful creatures have all become fools, and we have exchanged the glory of God for images. We're idolaters. Every last one of us. We have exchanged God for something lesser that is not God. All sin comes from not acknowledging, treasuring, putting a supreme value on the very person and trustworthiness and beauty and satisfying fountain that God by His nature is. And so Paul, in chapter 3, verse 10 of Romans, was very clear. None. Okay, do your math, teenagers. That means zero. That means you, teenagers, who were raised with Christian parents coming to church. And the more you become a teenager, the more you realize your sin, I hope. None is righteous. 
No, not one. See, the problem the Bible lays out is that we're not merely sinners. Oh, because look at that, I sinned again. We sin because we are in our nature sinners. It's not merely that, well, last week and the week before that or back yonder, I snubbed my nose at God, which I have done umpteen thousands of times. But it's that my very nature that I'm born with is anti-God. Yes, in its religiosity even. So, I mean, just really very quickly, just listen to how the, the Bible speaks about us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 4, it says that our hearts are blind. Ezekiel a few times made it very clear that the human heart is hard like a rock. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 5 says that we are not just comatose or injured towards God. We are dead in our trespasses and our sins. Romans chapter 7 to 8 Paul writes and says we are in that sin nature unable to submit to the law of God. And Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 says that we all by our very nature are children of God's wrath. He created us for His glory. We are thus duty-bound and have a moral obligation to live for His glory by trusting Him, thus obeying Him. We have all failed. It's called sin and sin nature. And therefore, we are all rightly, with perfect justice, have hanging over us God's holy wrath waiting for that great day. Romans 6.23 says it this way, The wages, Joe, of your sin is death. The Apostle Paul writes in first or Second Thessalonians 1.9, And these people, they, they shall suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when Jesus comes back on that day. In other words... We, and because we have all spurned, spit on the glory of God, this is the sin. You can see it in our father, Adam. Don't trust you. I'll eat. You're holding something back. Something better out here besides you. That's the foundation that plunged us all into sin. And because we have all now done it in Adam and in your experience, spurned the glory of God by saying, I don't need you and you're not the all-satisfying fountain, God's holy justice recompenses with perfect equivalence. He will not punish beyond what the crime deserves. And it calls it an eternal exclusion from God's loving, merciful presence 
forever. This now is where the person and the atonement of Jesus Christ comes in. Because this, here it is. Our text says it simply this way. Christ bore our sins in His body on the tree. In other words, in the context of what we've just heard, God has acted in a way that saves us from His holy, righteous wrath. And at the same time, He is upholding His glory. That's the atonement. Hell, eternal condemnation, is one way for God to satisfy His justice. The atonement of Jesus Christ is the other way that God satisfies His justice. And there is no third. See, to grasp why Jesus had to come and give His life as a sacrificial atonement, we need to feel the tension I just laid out there. We need to feel the tension that the essence of our sin is to belittle God. (laughs) Yet, God has chosen from before the foundation of the world to save God-belittlers so that He would share with them the eternal, excellent, beautiful, and enjoyable glory of His presence forever. That's a, how, is he gonna, how is He going to do that? How can God uphold His glory? In other words, take Himself seriously in, in, as opposed to not taking Himself seriously. And just saying, I'm not that important as God. How could He uphold His glory, be true to Himself, and at the same time, forgive sinners and share that very glory with them for their enjoyment forever? That's the tension that runs throughout Holy Scripture. God's passion to uphold His glory and God's determination that He will have a people whom He is saving who have spit on that glory. That is where the atonement of Jesus Christ comes in. I want you to turn, if you have a Bible, to Isaiah chapter 53. 700 years Before Jesus came, by the Holy Spirit, the prophet Isaiah writes about the atonement of Jesus. Start with verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes upon His back, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and we've turned every one of us to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Verse 8, By oppression and judgment He was taken away. And as for His generation, who considered that He was cut off out of the land of the living? Killed. Stricken for the transgression of My people. Verse 10, Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. God has put Him to grief. When His soul makes an offering for guilt, He shall see, here's the resurrection, He shall see His offspring, He shall prolong His days. Verse 12, Therefore I will divide to Him a portion with the many, and He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because He poured out His soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And yet, He bore the sin of many. What we just read there is the solution to the tension of God's love for His glory and His desire to save and love sinners who have profaned that glory. The atonement is the solution to that one huge, massive, God-centered problem. And He just clearly said, God killed Jesus. In Isaiah 53, verse 10. Literally, it pleased the Lord to crush Him. Why? Not as an end in itself. I get so much joy out of His torture. No! For the ultimate goal of upholding His glory in the salvation of sinners. The cross of Jesus was not a fluke of history. It was not an accident. It was the accomplishment of Almighty God's will. That's why in the first sermon ever preached in the church, the Apostle Peter stands up in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And he says in the middle of that sermon in chapter 2, verse 23, This Jesus who was delivered up 
according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of sinful men. Those are not in contradiction. God is bigger than your man-centeredness would give Him credit for. Who killed Jesus? Pilate? The Jews? Or the Sanhedrin? Or some of the Sanhedrin? And those who yelled crucified? Or you and me because of our sin? Who killed Jesus? Or was it God? The answer biblically is yes. Well, then why did God do it? He did it to solve the tension between His perfect, holy love for His glory and His love for sinners. But we, in our sin, and we think it's thinking well, why can't God just not do it that way and just let bygones be bygones and sweep it under the rug? Because you don't understand who God is, if we think that way. You, you, you have not read Scripture clearly all over the place. Because it does not fit with our man-centered philosophies and worldview. See, if we can get away from this radical human-centeredness that exists even in much of us professing Christians in, in the church world, we would see that the very essence of God's being and holiness as He's revealed Himself in Scripture would say very clearly to us, He cannot just sweep sin under the rug. He would be denying Himself His glory and He thus would be sinful and unrighteous. The biggest, massive, most huge question in the universe is how can God remain righteous, honoring His glory fully while showing mercy upon God-belittling sinners who have so spurned that glory. That's the atonement. God in His infinite wisdom has made a way for His love for you and me to deliver us by that love from His own anger and wrath without compromising His justice. That's the cross of Christ. That's where we're going to go next week more in-depthly in part two. And what we will just see in some is that in the death of Jesus, what happened is that He repaired the massive injury that we God-belittling creatures have inflicted upon His glory. And justice was fully done in Christ as our substitute. And that is why He is the only way for sinful people to be forgiven and shown eternal mercy 
in the resurrection. And as Peter said, for the inheritance which is laid up for you. Peter was so crystal clear in book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 12. This is why he says, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. So as I close, let me just read a couple and just hear the text of Scripture come at you about the great atonement of Jesus, the only Savior. In Romans 4.25, he writes, Jesus was put to death because of our trespasses. And He was raised in order that we may be justified. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 8.3 God, in sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh. In 1 Peter 3.18, Jesus died for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. And our text says, Christ bore our sins in His body on the cross. The benefits purchased by Jesus' substitutionary death belong to those who believe, who embrace this Gospel, not twisted Gospels, to embrace this substitutionary sacrifice for those who realize, woe is me. God, mankind, get it right. And then you'll have a place to understand what Scripture clearly says about Christ and the atonement. And then, tell them, believe, respond. Peter said it this way in the first sermon. What do we do then, Peter? Repent and be converted so that your sins may be blotted out. The jailer cried out to the Apostle Paul, How can I be delivered? Saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Because in the atonement, this reality stands. 
not everybody will be saved on that last day from God's holy wrath. But only those who have responded with a heart of faith and thanksgiving and joy, mind-boggling, glorious gospel that saves a wretch like me. Let's pray. Father, will You mercifully by Your Spirit cause this Gospel to sink down deeper into hearts of flesh and not bounce off of rock-hard, stubborn, sinful, man-centered, exalting hearts. Oh, may You cause all of us to continually taste and see how good Jesus is to us forever. And thus there's fruit of joy to be born here on this side of the grave in much trial and suffering. And may You help us be clear in the interactions You give us with loved ones or strangers in proclaiming this Gospel, sharing this Gospel, talking about the truth of this Gospel of God and of who we are and who they are sinfully and of the atonement of Christ. And thus, the pleading to respond to the glory of Your name to the establishment of your church, we pray. Amen.